Do you ever hear the story? You ever hear the story about two friends growing up named uh, we'll call them Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted grew up uh, as buddies, and uh, they both had a common passion. They both loved baseball, and um, that was a lot of fun for them. They played in the little league together. They got older and got you know, had to start working, but they watched baseball, watched the major leagues, played in you know you know community leagues as adults, and they just loved everything. Was baseball for the two of them. And they kept a good friendship, and then eventually they got older, and one day Bill passed away. And Ted was very lonely, still watched the games, wasn't quite the same without Bill around. So one day Ted decides to go and hire uh, uh, someone to do a seance to call Bill back from the other side so he can talk to him. And sure enough, it works, and there's Bill, and he's like, oh, Bill, I've missed you so much. Well, here I am, Ted. And Bill's like, uh, Ted's like, Bill, I, got, I just got one burning existential question just burning inside of me. What's, what's that? What's that, Ted? Well, I just need to know. I just need to know. Is there, is there baseball in heaven? I just got to know. And Bill says, well, I got some good news and I got some bad news. Well, lay it on me. Well, the good news is there is baseball in heaven. It's amazing, actually. I mean, the most beautiful ballparks you ever saw, the baseball diamonds are immaculate. The way they take care of the dirt infield and the way they cut, cut, the kind of grass in the outfield is pristine. Those concessions are delicious and they're always well-priced. And there's an angelic crowd always cheering in the outfield. I'm telling you, it's the best baseball. Yes, Ted, there is baseball in heaven. Ted's so relieved. He says, that's so good to hear. What's the bad news? Well, you're scheduled to pitch next Tuesday. Um, yeah, that'd be some bad news. Well, sorry about that. Just wanted to put that thought in your head as we get started today. We're continuing our series uh, through the biblical narrative. We've been spending a few weeks on the story of King Saul and now young David, who will be the future king. And just a little bit of reminder, because we're getting to a, a key moment, a, a climatic moment in the story here, that Saul started off as a pretty good king, it seemed like, but eventually he went off the rails. He just did. He, he just, I don't know if power corrupted him or if it revealed his true nature, but he did a lot of good things. He seemed like a good guy when he was discovered, and he did some, but he just, some party went down the bad path. And instead of changing, he just got worse and worse and continued stubbornly down a bad path. Eventually, he was confronted by Samuel the prophet multiple times. And the last time, Samuel the prophet, who anointed him in the first place, now told him, you're going to lose your kingdom. And God's going to give it to another person better than you. And, and, and then Samuel just grieved Saul the rest of his life and feared him because Saul became quite erratic and mentally unhealthy. Well, Samuel privately anointed David to be king. David was an unknown character, an overlooked person who simply washed his father's sheep, risked his life to keep him safe and protected, was a real heroic, unknown guy. He wrote music to the Lord and poetry. He played the harp masterfully. And after he was privately anointed to be the future king, he was publicly discovered through his music talents, followed by his talents on the battlefield to win the, the, tough, the tough fights. He became a leading commander in the army of Israel, and the whole nation loved him until Saul became jealous. And Saul decided he was a threat to his throne and began to spend the rest of his days neglecting his kingdom for the most part, just trying to hunt down his political adversary and get rid of him. 
And David's on the run and Saul's chasing him. And we picked up, we, we saw, if you were with us last week, we saw the story where David uh, had a confrontation with a man named Nabal. And afterwards, he ended up marrying Nabal's um, widow, when from Nabal died, uh, the beautiful and sensible Abigail. And I told you last week when David married Abigail, I told you don't romanticize it too much. I don't really want to make it like a Hallmark movie, Love Comes Gently or something like that. But don't over-romanticize what happened with David and Abigail. Because it also says that at the same time he married another woman named Ahinoam, at the same time he married her. And by the way, he already had a wife back home named Michael, Saul's daughter. Remember her? He was married to her, and she helped him escape when her dad was trying to kill him. She did him a favor, and then they were apart, and apparently heart absence makes the heart wander or something, I guess, because he marries two other women. So just don't quite romanticize it. This is a different time period in the world. I mean, I could picture, you know, Abigail walking up in her beautiful dress and her little bouquet, and here's another one walking over there. Who are you? I'm David's new wife. Who are you? I'm David's new wife. Then they're like those two little, that little toy you grew up with, the little boxing ring with the two robots in the middle. He was talking to me. No, he was talking to me. Pow, pow, pow. I don't know what happened, but something happened. And um, he has two wives and he has a wife back home. By the way, the wife back home, Michael, she married someone else. Dad gave her to a different person. I don't know if dad did that to spite David and just against her will and gave her to some other man in marriage. That could have happened in that day and age for sure. Or if she wanted it because she married David in the first place because it was her idea. She pushed for that to happen. Maybe she pushed for this to happen too. I don't know. All I know is Michael's now married to a different man and David's married to two different women. And that's the beautiful Hallmark movie for you right there. Anyhow, um, then we saw, after, now what happens after that is David spares King Saul's life for a second time. And we told that story out of order a couple weeks ago. But after David saved Saul again, we come to today's story. And I'm going to let you know right now that we're building to the today and next Sunday. These is going to be two parts of building to what we're calling David and Saul end game. That's for the sake of all you Marvel fans who want to have a term like end game thrown in to make church more exciting for you. Anyhow, but uh, David and Saul end game, and we're going to talk about that climactic finish for this part of the story this Sunday and finish it next Sunday. So let's begin. Um, after David spared Saul, 1 Samuel 27 verse 1 says that David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul's going to get me. I've survived so far, but someday he's going to get me. The best thing that I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I will finally be safe. So David makes a plan to leave the country and go to the Philistines. Uh, let's go back here because I'm not going to jump into, into this quite yet. What happens is that David, um, before, he, before he goes, he's done this before. This is not the first rodeo for David. David, um, David had once before gone to the Philistines. By himself, once he had, had first ran from Saul, he got Goliath's sword and some bread from the priests, and he went to the Philistines for refuge. Why would you go to an enemy nation for refuge? Well, the reason you do that is because you figure if it's an enemy nation who's at hostility with your nation, and you're at odds with your nation, they might harbor you out of spite against, in this case, spite, spite towards Israel and King Saul. They might help David out just because the enemy of my enemies is my friend. So, so David goes there the first time thinking he'll find sanctuary with the Philistines, but it didn't go very well. We kind of skipped that story, but the long and short of it is that David got there, 
And he found out that they weren't so excited to see him because he was known as a warrior who killed a lot of them back when he was fighting for Israel. In fact, the city he went to was Gath. That's the city that Goliath came from. David and Goliath. I mean, it's not like, so it didn't go well. Yet, by the way, just so you understand how the Philistines worked, the Philistines were kind of a conglomerate of, of powers, like several powerful cities with their own kings who unite together to have a, a whole system and uh, for, fight together. And one of those cities and one of those kings was Achish of Gath. And David went there before, but they were not happy to see him because he was uh, a warrior known for killing them. So David pretends to be insane and like crazy and escapes out of there with his life. But then he goes back to Israel and like 400 men join him and they bring their families and now he's got a whole bunch of people kind of on the run with him as, as, as he's a fugitive. And these men who are with him are helpful but also harder to hide. And now it's grown in today's story to 600 people. It's gotten even bigger. And... Um, David's got two wives now. He's got a whole group with him. And he realizes, I can't keep surviving. I've got to get out of town. So he makes a plan to try to go to the Philistines again, thinking if I bring an army of guys with me, maybe they'll see value in letting me stay there. Verse 2 says, So David took his 600 men, and he went over and joined Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David and his men... And their families settled there with Achish at Gath. And David brought his two wives along with him, Ahinoam and Abigail, Nabal's widow. And words soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath. So he stopped hunting for him. Now, what I want you to understand about this is that, um, I mean, obviously Saul can't chase David in enemy territory. As long as he's in Saul's turf, he could hunt him down, but now that David's gone, he's out of reach. Well, David's got a decision to make. David's got to decide, am I going to, you know, how am I going to make myself valuable to the Philistines? So he tells the king of, he tells Achish, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will conquer new territory for you and build your empire. And he makes the king of the Philistines believe that he's going to do that by, by t attacking Israel, his home country. So he, he, he moved to a city called the city of Ziklag. He leaves his wife and families. The wives and families and kids are all there with some bodyguards. And then David and the rest of his men, they go on their way to conquer and explore. And as they do, um, they, they conquer cities. They bring the, the plunder back with them. But they're never cities of Israel. They're never cities of Israel. Instead, they are cities of the Ammonites or other people that live out there. But the king of the Philistines, the king of Gath, thinks that David's attacking the Israelites because David kind of tells them that he is. He lies. And so when he brings back the spoils to the Philistines, the king is excited. He's like giddy excited about it. In verse 12, Achish believed David and thought to himself, by now the people of Israel must hate him bitterly. Now he will have to stay here and serve me forever. He's like, he's making his own people hate him. And I'm reaping all the benefits. You know, he's so, so happy that David is there and um, he thinks he has a loyal subject. But David's kind of playing him, isn't he? Because he's not really conquering Israel. He's conquering other places 
because he's not going to attack his own nation. But Achish doesn't know that. He thinks David's mine now. He's all mine. He'll serve me forever. Well, what happens next is a little bit crazy because now the Philistines decide, let's start a full-on war against Israel. Chapter 28, verse 1, about that time, the Philistines mustered their armies for another war with Israel. That means all the kings of the Philistines, all five of them, get all their armies into a mass. This is not some little campaign. This is a war. And King Achish told David, you and your men will be expected to join me in battle. This is awkward for David. What's David supposed to do? If he does, I mean, in the past, he's been able to pretend like he's helping the Philistines against Israel, but he's not really done anything to his own country. But now he's being told, you're going to join me. What does he do? Does he go and join the Philistines and fight against his own nation because Saul's after him? That seems wrong. But if he turns against the Philistines in the middle of it all, he's going to be surrounded by them. That could be bad. What does he do? He's in a very bad spot here, but David can punt that down the road for the moment being. So he answers quickly and says to, to Achish, he says, very well, very well. Now you will see for yourself what we can do. You've not watched me, but I'm, I'm good out there. Well, I guess you did watch me when I was against you back in the old days, but, but you've not seen me lately. You watch, I'll, I'm, we're, gonna, we're gonna be good together. And Achish is so giddy happy. He's like, I'll make you my personal bodyguard for life. He just loves David, you know. Like, you're going to help me win, and you're going to make me strong as a king, and I love it. And David's being dragged into battle against his own nation. Well, as we move towards this endgame moment between David and Saul, I want to take the rest of the day to tell you a story about Saul. And then we're going to go back to David before we finish. It says in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, that meanwhile Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and he was buried in Ramah, his hometown. We already saw that last couple of weeks. We've discussed Samuel's death. But then it says this, and Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. So this was something that Saul did that was, that was actually in line with his responsibilities because the law that God had given Moses to give to Israel was that they were to, aban- to banish all occultic practices from the land of Israel. They were not allowed to be there. No, witchcraft is allowed. Witchcraft is supposed to be fleshed out and kicked out. And there's, it's not, in fact, it actually said to put it to death. But Saul decided, I'm going to at least get it out of the country. I'm going to expel it from the country. So so Saul is following the law of Moses as his responsibility as a king. And I want to say that because we always give Saul a hard time. He's kind of turned into a bad guy, hasn't he? But he wasn't always a bad guy. And even now he's doing some things he's supposed to do. You know, not everyone who's bad is always bad. Not everyone who's good is always good, I guess. But, but Saul, as messed up as he is against David and as, as bad of a path as he's on, he has been trying to do the right thing according to his responsibilities by the law of Israel. And one of them was to get rid of the occultic practices and the witchcraft, kick him out of the land, which is awkward because, you know, you don't want to cross the king, you know, if, which, if, 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 uh, if it's not allowed, you either leave or you disassociate. You're like... Get away from me, you witch. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. Um, Okay, that was a movie quote. Some of you know that, right? What was I quoting from just now? Someone? 
Thank you. Someone knows that. Princess Bride. Okay. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. Okay. Anyhow, so he says, look, get them all out of the land. Kick them out of here. And um, he did his job. Here's the problem. Verse number five. When Saul saw the vast Philistine army, he became frantic with fear. When Saul realized how big the enemy was gathered to fight him, he realized this was not a small campaign. He was possibly in trouble. And it was not unlike Saul to face fear and depression and a lot of other mentally challenging emotions. And he's frantic. Verse 6 says he asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him either by dreams or by sacred lots or by the prophets. And Saul's not known for being very patient, is he, folks? If you remember the story from several weeks ago when Saul would have to, to go and he had to, had to wait to offer a sacrifice to the Lord or seek the Lord's face, he would always be impatient. And if Samuel was supposed to come help and Samuel was late getting there, Saul would overstep his boundary because he couldn't wait. He was so impatient. And now he's facing an enemy. He's frantic with fear and he's talking. God, answer me. I'll try anything. I'll send a vision to me. Give me a dream. I'll try the dice, you know. I'll try the sacred lots. Or a prophet. Where's the prophets? No one has an answer for Saul. He's just left in the dark. And he makes a decision. Verse 7. Saul then said to his advisors, find a woman who is a medium so I can go ask her what to do. Some translations say witch there. Find a woman who is a medium so I can ask her what to do. And um, this is awkward because he made it illegal. Actually, the law of Moses made it illegal. He's enforced that law as the king of a centralized government. They're out of here. And now he's like, you know, typical government leader. Good for me, but not for thee, or good for thee, but not for me, or however that works. He's like, um, after all, I kind of need one, though. So they shouldn't be here, but where can I find one? So he's looking for somebody he can talk to and practice a little bit of a hoping maybe some witchcraft can help him figure out what's next. So he, who, where, where's, where can I find a medium? And his advisors are like, oh yeah, there's one at Andor, which is kind of funny. Like his advisors knew where there was one at, even though it was illegal. It's kind of like the people, like, you know, it's illegal to have certain things, but someone knows where to get them anyhow. Like it's not legal, but we know where to find it, you know. That's kind of what's going on here. The CIA is like, oh, we have our, our eyes on some, some people practicing that occult, and they're not supposed to be here, but we know where they are. It's just on the down low. So they say to Saul, we can take you to one right now. Verse 8 says, so Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. Why would he do that? He doesn't want anyone to know what he's doing. Because after all, he made it illegal. It's kind of awkward. But also because then a lot of questions, what was Saul doing there? So he just decides to put on regular clothes, take off his royal robes, put on the little fake glasses and mustache and big nose, you know. And, and he just, he's going to go his own way and, and try to meet this person privately. It says, then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. And he said, I have to talk to a man who has died Will you call up his spirit for me? He wants to have a full-on seance going on here. I want to talk to someone who's dead. Can you help me with that? The woman's answer is very interesting. She says, are you trying to get me killed? 
You know that Saul has outlawed all the, King Saul has outlawed all the mediums and all the, those who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? She's like, are you an FBI informant undercover trying to trap me? Because King Saul's forbidden it. And, he, and Saul's like, oh yes, that, that King Saul, that terrible, handsome, tall, handsome, mean man that he is, you know. But, but don't worry about it. I'm not going to get you in trouble. So Saul convinces her, verse 10, Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, as surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. And he must convince her because she decides to help him. Finally, the woman said, well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Call up Samuel, Saul replied. <laughs> okay. You mean Samuel, the guy who wanted you king, and then Samuel, the guy who told you you're going to lose the kingdom, and Saul, Samuel, the guy that you weren't in a good relationship with to the end of your reign, but you mourned his death because you missed him. You want to have talk to Samuel. You think that's going to go well? Samuel, who always tells you what God has to say, even if you don't want to hear it. Yep, call up Samuel. Okay. So she does. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, you deceived me, you are Saul. Can we just pause here and acknowledge this is a very weird story? Apparently, it went down, it worked. Like she really was able, she summons the spirit of Samuel and when she does, she sees him and, and, and apparently for me, when you read the story here, Saul can't see him, she's the medium. She's communicating with Samuel and she sees Samuel, but Saul doesn't. And she, when she wants, she sees Samuel there in this, this exercise. She, she looks at Saul and she says, now I know who you are. Because it becomes very clear to her what's going on right then. You're the king. You deceived me. And she's freaked out. Don't be afraid, the king told her. Just, just what do you see? I see a God coming up out of the earth, she said. What does he look like, Saul asked. He's an old man, wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel, and he fell to the ground before him. Now, again, we don't know that if, if maybe Saul can suddenly see the, the, uh, the apparition of Saul, or if he still can't see, but he just knows he's there because the woman says he's right there, because you know, he hasn't been able to see anything so far, but he falls to the ground. And then Samuel's going to start talking to Saul. I don't know if he hears his voice and sees something or just hears his voice and sees nothing, or if the woman speaks for Samuel or maybe Samuel's voice to the woman's body. All the way, it's, just, it's, the, it's late at night and it's kind of creepy and I don't want to be there is all I'm saying. But anyhow, uh, Saul falls on the ground before Samuel and Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by calling me back? That's a great question, by the way. Like Samuel's like, dude, I was perfectly fine before. <laughs> I had moved on from this place. I was in a better place. And I let, this is a place where they, the people of Israel rejected me from being their judge and wanted a king. And that hurt my feelings, but I anointed you. And then you went bad. And I had to fight that battle. And I grieved you. And then I feared you. And, and I did my job. And I left that crazy world you live in. And I'm in a better place now. Why have you disturbed me? By calling me back. I don't want to be here. Right? Well, Saul, and I didn't say this earlier. I meant to, but. Saul had some pretty narcissistic tendencies along the way, anyhow. I mean, that's been the story for the last few weeks. But he don't care. He's just looking out for himself here. And so Saul says, it's because I'm in deep trouble. 
The Philistines, they're, they're at war with me, and God has left me and won't reply by prophets or by dreams, so I've called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, why ask me? Since the Lord has left you to be, and has become your enemy, like, what are you asking me for, buddy? I mean, obviously, if God's not answering you, what do you think I'm going to tell you? Something different? Do you really want to know what i got to say? He says, the Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and has given it to your rival, David. I wonder when I read this, if this is the first time Saul officially heard the word, David is the next king. We know David was anointed privately out of fear of Saul. Saul figured out when David became popular that he was probably the next king. He even said along the way, I know that the kingdom will be yours someday. But did he know or did he know no? But now that he's talking to Samuel, it's official. When you're talking to a prophet, when you're talking to a dead prophet, okay, you know, it's official. God has given the kingdom to your rival David. But Samuel's not done giving Saul some bad news. Samuel continues, what's more, he said, the Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow, and you and your sons will be here with me. Whoops. <laughs> You're pitching next Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, Saul. Um, tomorrow's it, buddy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, how many of you would love to know the day? You know? And Saul's just been told, yeah, it's, it's bad. You, the guy didn't tell you, but I'll, sure, if you summon me, I'll, I'll tell you. You're dying tomorrow, buddy. Israel loses your, by the way, your sons are going to die too. You're all dead. That's great. And then Samuel just, well, I think Samuel continues. He says, the Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. And then he leaves. He just leaves from there. Like Samuel's just like, okay, toodles. And he just takes off. And Saul's left to think, what in the world? If it says Saul fell full length on the ground, paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words, wouldn't you be? If you just went in the middle of the night to a medium and had a whole ritual and brought a dead guy back who just told you, I'll see you tomorrow where I'm at, you know. I mean, Saul is paralyzed with fright. He's laying on the ground. He was also faint with hunger, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. So in other words, the, the coming into the story, he was so worked up about what, what was coming that he never ate. And now that he got this bad news, he is physically weak, he's emotionally weak, and he can't get off the ground. But he can't stay there. He's the king. He can't just curl up in a puddle on someone else's floor and never move. So it says that when the woman saw how distraught he was, she said, Sir, sir, I have obeyed your voice at the command of, at your, your command at the risk of my own life. Now do what I say and let me give you a little something to eat so you can regain your strength for the trip back. You're not you and you're hungry, buddy. So let me feed you. I'll have my husband. Make you a nice MLT, a mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. The mutton's nice and lean and the tomato's ripe. So perky. Anyhow, that's another story. But she says, let me, let me get you some food. I'll, I'll feed you. And you can eat. And, and you can um, go back to your home and get your strength back. But Saul refused to eat anything. Then his advisors joined the woman in urging him to eat. So he finally yielded and got up from the ground. They got him off the ground. 
and sat him on the couch and fed him. She, she went and prepared a meal. She brought the meal to, the, to Saul and to his advisors, and they ate it. And then they went out into the night. He's feeling better. He's, he's eaten. He's like, how do you feel? I feel better, and yet strangely depressed. Because he's going out into the night, which is turning into the morning pretty quickly, so he can join his forces to go to a battle that he's been told by a dead dude that he's going to lose and that he's going to die in. So Saul's leaving to go to his fate. I mean, and the poor lady's like, oh, see ya, have fun storming the castle. You know, I don't know. But, but he's leaving and she's on her own. Now, I want to finish the story with just like a, one extra little detail at the end. But I just want to kind of wrap up the, the meat of our time today by talking about what just happened. Not the medium and the seance, but the, the, the fact that Saul is now a dead man walking. He's not dead yet. He's, he's still alive. But he's just been told you got less than 24 hours. And suddenly, it's the end. And it just, it reminds me of a principle because if you've been with us for the past many weeks, you've watched this story slowly unfold, slowly unfold, Saul's decisions along the way, all along the way. And then here we are and now, it's on him. And it reminds me of a principle that I have, I've grabbed in life and has helped me, helps me as a guy who enjoys financial investing, helps me as a person trying to think of my health. I don't always practice it every way I should, but it, it has definitely guided me and helped me many times. Is a simple little phrase that I want to hand to you and make sense of it with you. It goes like this. Slowly and then suddenly. Slowly and then suddenly. It's just a, it's just a little life principle. And it's a negative and a positive angle. Negatively and positively. Slowly then suddenly. Um... And I want to come back to that, but let me, let me give you this phrase. There's almost always, there's almost always a delay between our choices and our consequences, right? There's almost always a delay between our choices and our consequences, slowly and then suddenly. Let me just pl- apply it to life. It's like your physical health. You can not exercise and you can abuse your body through what you eat or what you what substance abuse you indulge in, and you can, you can mistreat your body. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just, you know, poor eating habits. It could be any number of ways, but we don't take care of our health. And sometimes we think, what's the big deal? Look at me, I'm still fine. I mean, you know, I, was, I haven't done well in a while, but I'm as good as anybody else. I mean, there's no, you know. And because, because day upon day, we don't always see where our choices are taking us. But then sometimes with your health, you'll do things to undermine it or abuse it and, and, and for a long time, things seem pretty normal until suddenly the diagnosis comes. Suddenly the bad news drops. Suddenly it catches up to us. It's oftentimes slowly and then suddenly. That's true with our financial decisions. We can oftentimes make bad financial decisions and, and day in and day out say, what? No big deal. I'm still okay. I'm doing as well as you who are being more responsible because I'm having more fun doing it. I'm okay. We're still Okay. Until something happens where the bottom falls out in some area of our life all of a sudden and then it all catches up to us and we're in a pickle. And it almost oftentimes happens slowly than suddenly. It's, it's true with relationships, right? With relationships. People can be in a relationship with somebody and mistreat that person by either neglecting their relationship or by, you know, being, you know, unkind and mean. 
And sometimes there's no immediate repercussions because the other person is either just putting up with it or they're too patient or principled or they're just praying. And so it seems like they're getting away with being neglectful or mean or whatever they're doing and thinking, what, you know? That's just how I am, and people accept it, and I'm going to be okay. There's no, there's no downside. And everything's fine for a long time until suddenly, until suddenly it's over. Until suddenly it's over. That's how things happen sometimes in life. Slowly and then suddenly. In the journey, you can almost see the little progress. You see the little things happening, moving along, and then boom. And Saul has had the chance all this time. Think about what's happened in the story today. Saul has absolutely... I mean, when he was on the wrong path and Samuel warned him, he could have changed his direction many times. Even when he was given consequences, if he had repented back then, we've seen over and over in the same section of the scriptures that oftentimes that turned into God's mercy. And even if he got to a point where it was too late for his own kingdom, once David rose up as a young man and was a warrior, David could have, he could have looked at David and said, David, I believe you're the next king, so here's the deal. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to try to kill you. I'm going to prepare you. I'm not going to resign my throne. I'm going to live out my days because I like what I do, but I'm going to help prepare you to take my job when I'm done one day. And I'm, going to, I'm going to give you the inside scoop and I'm going to take care of you. And when I am gone and you are the king, do me a favor and don't hurt my family like some people do when they take the throne. And Saul could have made a whole better path instead of killing people along the way to get to David. But Saul, over and over again, kept making bad choices and driving down a bad direction. And you know what was happening? He was doing it because there was no immediate consequences. No matter what he did, all that would happen to him is he'd get scolded by the prophet. But he was still king. David would spare his life. He almost died. But guess what? He didn't die. David spared him. He's still the king. And no matter what happened, he was still in control, though he was losing it along the way. Until this day in today's story, when all of a sudden, you got one day. No more negotiation, no more time, time's up. Slowly and suddenly. And, and this is something that we find in scriptures throughout the, the Bible. But one place I want to point out to you is written by, by David, who would eventually become the king. Spoiler alert. <laughs> David would eventually become king. And then David, when he was gone, his son Solomon would become king. And Solomon would also, like David, write wisdom literature. David wrote psalms and other songs to God. Solomon would write, you know, proverbs and songs of his own. And so he's a lot like his dad in that way. But Solomon, many years later, would write a book called Ecclesiastes. And, and he knew these stories that we're telling today. And he, and he saw so much. He was a wise man. And he makes a statement in a few verses that we're not going to read them all today, but we're going to read them in an upcoming week. But just one little glimpse of one verse, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. In other words, he's not referring to law enforcement saying, guys, get, get on the ball. He's making an observation about life. He's saying when people do something that's wrong and it, and it doesn't get punished quickly, maybe because... No one, no one, they're, let, they're let off the hook. Or maybe no one even notices. They get away with it because no one catches them. Or maybe they find leniency along the way. 
It happens all the time to all of us. We do things that we shouldn't do. We do things that are wrong in our, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's something as simple as to our health or to our finances or to our relationships, more importantly. Or maybe it's a literal crime of some kind. But when we do wrong things and, and there's no immediate consequence, it's not punished quickly, people get the false sense of security that says, I'm gonna be okay. I can do this and get away with it. I'm the exception to the rule. I can do what I want to, and it won't catch up to me. Because see, there's no consequence. See, there's no fallout. And so it lulls people into a false sense of security, as I said a moment ago, but there's almost always a delay between the, our choices and their consequences. And here's what I want to add. That the delay convinces us that the consequences will never come. Right? The delay convinces us, oh, I'm going to be okay. It's not going to catch up to me. Because look, nothing's happened so far. But slowly and then suddenly, slowly and then suddenly, things happen. And I told you that this, this is a message that has a negative and positive side. And this seems like the negative side of the message, right? But can I be honest? Even the negative side of this message, of this slowly then suddenly application, is positive, because it tells us that as long as we're on a path, if we've not reached the sudden end, there's a chance to turn things around. There's a chance to, to start thinking about what's ahead. I love this kind of, this kind of principle I'm talking about today has guided my life in so many ways. And, and where I've followed it, it has helped me. And where I've not followed it, it has not. Because I've not listened. But I'll tell you something, folks, and you and I both know it's true, that when we're warned of something and we're forced to step away from our immediate circumstances and take the long look, we can be reminded of where things are headed. And the story of Saul is a reminder of where things go. Slowly, then suddenly. That's an encouragement. That's the positive side of it is it gives us something to act on. What are we doing? Where is it taking us? And are we convinced ourselves that the delay means the end never comes? The consequences never come? Or are we on a slow but steady process towards a sudden conclusion from wrong choices? Now, I think it's positive because it helps us find direction. But I think there's something else positive in this story that's a little bit of a Christian message that we overlook. And it's beautiful because it's something that happens in the middle of the story that we just read. And I hope you didn't overlook it. But if you did, I'm going to show it to you now. Because here's the statement I want to give you first. You can't outrun the consequences, but you also can't outrun grace. You can't outrun the consequences, but you can't outrun grace. I've, I've said this before. I preached a whole sermon a few weeks ago. If you missed it, it's online. About both are true. That, that, that God is love and that choices have consequences. And those are not contradictory ideas. That God is love. But he also created us. and He gave us life out of love and put us into a world that operates off of a system of laws. Natural laws like gravity and thermodynamics and natural laws and spiritual laws like reaping what you sow and, and, and call it what you want to use other terms if you want to. But there's just certain things about this world that naturally and spiritually are how it works in the sandbox in which God placed us. And, and choices lead to consequences in that world. But also God is love. And those are not contradictory ideas. So when my choices bring me consequences... That does not mean that God doesn't love me. And if God loves me, 
That does not mean there are no consequences to right choices. Those things are both true at the same time. And in the middle of Saul's story, Saul has gone off the rails and he's gone on a bad path. And now slowly and then suddenly he's facing some consequences that he can no longer outrun. But in the middle of the story today, as Samuel tells him you're going to die, notice what Samuel says to him. Saul, tomorrow you're going to be with me. Not Saul, you're going to be nowhere. You're going to cease to exist. Not Saul, you're going to be in hot water, literally. Saul, you'll be with me tomorrow. Why? Well, why would Saul? Because even though Saul could not run his consequences, he also could not run grace. That young man who was anointed king, who seemed like such a sharp guy, a hero, a guy you'd cheer for, who did some very awesome things, but then went down a dark path in the end, found that at the end there was God's grace. And this is not a message that we see an awful lot in the Old Testament or Old Covenant, back in the Hebrew Scriptures. But we see it all the time in the Christian writings, don't we? In the Christian writings, it's the centerpiece of the whole story of Christianity. That Jesus came to die for our sins and rise again and destroy the power of death to remind us that there is life after death and things go on. He told parables before he died about you know, Abraham you know, and, and David and where they are and all just amazing things to show that there is an afterlife. And the Christian messages march on the fact that, that thanks to Jesus, we now have the assurance without doubt of something that we Always hope, but now we know that life goes on when this life is over and Jesus paid the price to make that possible. And that we have hope beyond this. But you don't see that a lot in the Jewish writings, the ancient Hebrew writings. You don't see it a lot, but you see it sometimes. I can give you five or six quick examples, but it doesn't matter. One of them is right here when Samuel says to Saul, buddy, you sit tomorrow and then you're going to be with me. And I think as Christians in a modern context, that ought to mean something to some of us because today, whether it's your own end that will eventually arrive, and it will for all of us, or whether it's the end of somebody else you've loved, the way we face death in this world is different than the way that people do without faith. Without faith, you have nothing you believe in. How do you face loss when you don't believe in anything? It's just the end. But as people of faith, we understand and believe that God took care of that end. And so we don't grieve the same way. We don't mourn the same way. We have comfort even in loss because we know that there is a hello after goodbye. That there's a beginning after the end. Just a changing of the chapter. Here's the thing. You can't outrun consequences in this life that God gave us. But the good news is you also can't outrun grace. Amazing grace that Jesus provided for us free of charge at Calvary and offers us all. And I hope that today your faith in Christ will give you a comfort that no matter where this life takes you and what you experience, you know that at the end, there's amazing grace. And the story will continue. Well, I gotta wrap this up, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go back to David for just a moment. Because Saul leaves, Saul leaves the medium's house and he goes back with his guys with his belly full to get ready to go to battle the next mor- that morning where he's told he's going to die. So do you think Saul might have had a heavy mind going into that battle? But on the other side of the conflict is the Philistines and with them is David. 
And David also has a heavy mind. What's David supposed to do? Fight against his nation? No way. Turn against the Philistines when he's surrounded by them? Ugh. It looks bad. It's a bad optic, no matter what happens, that he came against his own nation with their enemies. What's David supposed to do? So David's got a heavy mind. Saul's got a heavy mind. And they're heading to one epic final conflict. And we'll finish that story next week as we talk about David and Saul, end game, part two. But for today, I hope that you'll let this phrase stay with you because we're going to come back to it later. Slowly then suddenly, what does that mean to you in your faith journey?